Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Hey, we are uh, in a series that we're calling the One Series. Um, and what it, we've been trying to do is trying to look at um, what it means to... Uh, sort of center ourselves as a people around the core ideas of Christianity, the things that Christians uh, from almost every stream of of the faith can uh, agree with and be sort of uh, sold on, can sort of own. And we've been sort of bouncing off of a text from uh, Ephesians chapter 4, a little mini-creed from Paul um, that you'll just see that on the screen. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, it belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And looking at these sort of big ideas. And last week we looked at hope and we just realized we couldn't get through it. There's just too much hope to do in one week. So we thought we would have at least two weeks of hope. Um, so uh, we're going to dig into that a little bit more. Um, last week we looked at sort of the question of what, what happens when we die. We all sort of have just sort of a basic understanding, if you look at sort of the popular view of what it is to believe uh, that God is going to do something with us through the cross and and into eternity, we have kind of a a nebulous idea of heaven with all kinds of different questions about it and clouds and, uh, you know, angels floating with little fluffy feathery wings and uh, streets of gold and all of that. We think, okay, we're going to get there and somehow it's going to be good. but there's a way in which that thinking sort of can produce in us uh, kind of an escapism, kind of a, hey, I guess it'll be okay. I'm just going to let the world do what it does. And when I die, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all good. Um, so, we, so we wanted to sort of unpack that understanding a little bit more. What does the Bible really say about it? And we uh, put a, an image on the screen of um, uh, sort of looking at our present reality, but, but looking at it with uh, a little bit more complexity going into the future. If you look at this section, uh, the resurrection was something we just sung about, it's something we talked about, but we don't necessarily really understand what that means or how it's relevant to us. And then the idea, of course, the coming of the new heaven and the new earth uh, that we read about in the book of Revelation. And uh, we, I, was, I was thinking about it as we, as we look at this, there's a way in which this picture of Revelation, this, uh, this um, sort of new embodied existence, this life in resurrected bodies on a repaired and remade earth where maybe we can play around a golf with Moses or something like that, um, that life is something that is, is kind of exciting and it's sort of great to wonder about, but it's actually possible for that even uh, for us to be a kind of escapism. We can kind of look at everything that happens past when we die and say, I'm really excited about that. I'm really glad to kind of get out of here. But I don't know how it really affects my life right now. How does knowing about that really change my life right now? Like, it gives me hope. It, it lets me think, yeah, it's going to get better. So I'm hoping for something that will happen. But does it affect my decision making now? Is, does it affect my life? Is it, is it somehow informing me? Is it somehow changing the way I navigate the world in this moment? And so we sort of left ourselves with this question, this really this core belief that is held by Anglicans and Baptists and Pentecostals and uh, Free Methodists and Methodists and uh, 
Greek Orthodox, um, you know, the, the, the core beliefs of Christianity, I think they, they would affect us right now. How does that really work? And so we sort of broke it down into these two basic questions, and we can look at those on that next slide. You know, how is resurrection breaking through right now? Like what happened to Jesus and, and what will ultimately happen when Jesus returns is there a way we can see that happening right now? Is there a way that it's impacting us right now in the present? Is there, is there something relevant about that here? And the other question is, is, does what we do here actually matter there? Does what we do here in our present actually have some echo or some impact in eternity? Is, is there some kind of connection? And, and of course I believe there is, and I think we see it in the scriptures. And theologians from every stream worldwide believe this, but it's not something we've really taught about or we've really thought about as Christians. And so we just want to dig into it. We're just going to leave that slide up the whole time and just begin like we did last week and dig into some scriptures that speak to the linkage between eternity and the present so we can understand how this is meant to affect us as people here and now. And of course, the starting place of all of this is the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. The first place where we see resurrection and eternity breaking into the present, breaking into our reality, is through the resurrection of Jesus. We actually saw it happen. We actually saw it happen historically. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is how Paul is making his case. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 23, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. What that means for us is that this isn't a vague and distant hope. Uh, this isn't intangible. This is something we've seen in history. This is something that witnesses observed. We have seen death defeated. There is historical evidence of it. There, there are seven basic arguments uh, that are theories about what happened to Jesus' body and to why uh, the grave is empty. Uh, someone just unconnected with the story at all just found his body and removed it. That's one of the theories that uh, people hold. Somebody just, wow, that's cool. I'm going to just take this thing and go somewhere with it, right? I don't know. That's one of the theories. Uh, the bodies were stolen by the disciples, right? There's a million ways to poke holes in that. If the disciples perpetrated some kind of fraud, perpetrated some kind of deception, why then in the years that followed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, did they endure torture and hardship and beatings and floggings being commanded to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ? None of them cracked because they'd seen something. They'd seen him alive and walking about on the earth. Uh, the empty tomb visited by the women was not the tomb of Jesus. They got the wrong address. That's the other theory. It's like they, they, they Google, Google Maps was wrong or something like that. And when they tried to map their way to it, they should have taken a bus number three instead of bus number four, and they got to the wrong spot. Right? That's one of the theories. The women didn't know where this thing had happened. Um, the other theory is that Jesus was buried alive and, and just later left. 
I mean, with a sword in his thigh, side and the crown of thorns in his head and the nails through his hands and feet that didn't, that didn't that, you know, the sword that sort of pierced through to his heart where blood and water flowed. Yeah, he was just in a coma. He just got up and decided to leave. It's one of the theories, right? Uh, that this is just a spiritual, uh, not a bodily resurrection. They're all just talking metaphorically here. Jesus was metaphorically eating fish on the beach with his disciples, right? Like, the theories are, are really nonsense. And when you look at the evidence, we know that there is a person who stopped dying, like, didn't, didn't stay dead. Humans don't not stay dead, right? Jesus rose from the grave. And this should do something to us. This should inspire us. This should give us incredible hope. There's a reality that he did this. And we know and we see in the scriptures his incredible love for us and his promise that we are going to get to walk in the same thing. People can make promises, but if they have not the power, not demonstrated the power that they can deliver on those promises, what's the point? Jesus demonstrated that he has power to deliver on the promise. This is not a vague hope. This is a real hope. My son Toby, he's a, he's a creative genius. Uh, he's always talking about um, inventing things. Dad, let me tell you about my anti-gravity machine. I'm like, what? Do you have that in your room somewhere? Like, this is amazing. And he gives this amazing description of, uh, I'll be okay with this though, this amazing description of it. So, um, uh, you, know, this, you know, it's got such a beautiful creative mind, this description of how it works and how everything's going and, and all of the, uh, uh, the technology that it works. But Tobes, I mean, show me, man. Like, can you, like, levitate yourself? You know, and, and he can't levitate himself. And, no one in history has levitated themselves, and nobody in, in the whole world has ever managed to pull that off, except for in science fiction movies. So we don't really believe that's a real thing. That's, that's science fiction. But the resurrection isn't science fiction. We saw it happen. It was real, and people believed it, and people died holding on to that truth. So this is the first place, the first linkage between eternity and the present, is we've already seen a taste of it. The, the word used in that uh, text was first fruits. That's what we see in Jesus, first fruits of the resurrection. It's broken through. The second linkage we see between that resurrection and our present reality is through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Right, Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says this, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The linkage is that the same person who was the agent of the resurrection, the person of the Holy Spirit, the person who made that happen, um, who resurrected Jesus from the dead, the mover and shaker that pulled that off, the one who was present at creation, hovering over the waters, was a part of forming the land and the seas and the sun and the stars and the skies, all of that power of the Holy Spirit. And then the one who is ultimately going to bring the new heaven and the earth together, that person, that Holy Spirit, dwells in you the creator of the new heavens and the new earth, 
dwells in you. And that's why we have stories in the book of Acts, like Acts 28, uh, 3, Paul's stoking up a campfire. There's some soldiers around him. He's hanging out. He's sort of in prison, but he's, uh, you know, helping them build the fire. And he goes and he puts some wood on the fire and it disturbs it. And a snake comes crawling out, attaches itself to his hand. And it's a poisonous snake. And they're all sitting there just waiting, watching for him to die. And Paul just says, eh, he shakes it off into the fire and goes about his business. And in that moment, they sort of like, is this guy a god? Like, what's going on? Well, he, Paul wasn't a god. He was a man like you and me. He had a thorn in his flesh. He had all kinds of struggles. But he had God living inside of him. He had eternity inside of him. He had the resurrection inside of him. And this is what we see in Mark 16. Uh, Verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Um, And whoever, sorry, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. They will pick up, sorry, serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord, who was seated up in heaven, through the Holy Spirit, the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Listen, the spirit that lives inside of us that um, raised Christ from the dead means to continue to do that work through us, through his people, through his body. Listen to this, like verse 16 there that we just read in Mark 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned, right? We believe that as a text for all believers, right? That's a text for all of us. That's part of the salvation message that we preach across the board. And then it says this, and these signs will accompany those who believe, except just the apostles that will stop after them. I I don't think that's parts in there. This is a universal. These signs will accompany those who believe. They will, those who believe in my name will cast out demons, will speak in new tongues. And if you talk to people, you talk to uh, pastors, you talk to missionaries, you talk to uh, Christians on the street, uh, so many of us have stories, and not nearly enough stories, and not nearly as many as we would like, not nearly as, as glorious as we would like, but we've seen foretastes of that. We've seen foretastes of resurrection power breaking into the present, power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be a people who continually walk in that power. This is for us. And I don't know why there are moments when uh, we've seen it in the in the past. You know, between uh, twenty or sorry, between nineteen ninety six and and twenty twenty, I saw ninety nine percent of the miracles I've seen in my life. And I don't know why it works like that, but I've seen. I've seen blind eyes opened. I saw a girl with two legs, one shorter than the other. I saw the other leg grow. We've seen miracles. There are moments when heaven breaks through. There's a reality that we are called to be open to and called to walk in and called to grow in expectation of heaven is meant to break in to earth. We believe it because we've seen it. 
And the third linkage uh, we see in terms of heaven breaking into earth. Uh, we see in not just the outcome of Holy Spirit ministry and the flow of spiritual gifts, but in Romans 6, we see this. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And that's a repetition of something that Paul says elsewhere. But in that context, he's talking about walking free from sin. The power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us that sets us free from sin, from bondage, from addiction. That's the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. That's resurrection, breaking through from God's great future and into our present. From what Christ did and into our present. God taking all times and giving them to us in this moment to walk in them. To walk in power. To walk in a newness of life. So heaven breaks in, resurrection breaks through. How does it matter? How does what we do here matter there? How does what we do in this present matter there? Is there some connection? Is there some way in which this is a seed? This body that I live in is somehow a seed that will ultimately die and be planted, but somehow impact that thing which will one day be resurrected? Is there some connection here? And, and you know what, that's, it's, it's, it's fascinating, right? Like there is something inside of us that doesn't easily make that connection, right? Does, does what we do in creation here matter? We kind of have this thing that sort of flits around in the back of our heads someday that says, you know, it doesn't matter if I litter. It doesn't matter if I, you know, drive a, a really stinky car, um, and pollute the atmosphere and, and all of this kind of stuff because, you know, the whole heaven and earth is just going to be wiped out. It's going to be burnt. It's going to pass away, and God's going to start with something new. So I, I don't really have to take care of what's here. I don't have to take care of my body very well because ultimately the worms are going to get it. It's going to be okay. It's all going to be good. I'm going to get a new one. I'm going to get to trade it in. There's a couple of reasons why that's not quite the way we're meant to think about our bodies and not quite the way we're meant to think about the world that we live in. Uh, the first problem with this thinking isn't even something that uh, we, well, it's something we clearly can see in the scriptures, but it's something that we just intuit. Um, and that is that if we live in this way, a way disregarding what we've received in the present and thinking that it has no um, beauty or value in eternity, is it simply just disrespectful of the gift? Simply disrespectful of the gift that we've received, the gift that we've received in terms of the planet and the beauty that it is and the bodies that we've received. Um, let's, let's humanize this. Let's think about it. Pretend you're thinking about it as a parent for a little while. Imagine that you're going to give a child a gift at Christmas. And it's a, it's a toy. It's maybe a Fisher-Price set. How many of you had those when you were growing up? And you give that to your child, and you know in your head that ultimately it's going to wear out. They're going to play with it. They're going to sort of eventually break it. It's not going to last forever. Um, you know, ultimately it's sort of destined for the landfill. Um, but in the end, it's, uh, it's uh, something that the kids are going to enjoy here and now. Now, what would your heart be like as a parent if you'd purchased that for them? Uh, you know, they play with it, and eventually it does wear out. You're, you're kind of okay with that as a mom and a dad. But what if they intentionally misuse it? They trash it. They smash it. 
they take a hammer and, and break it into small pieces and grind it into powder just for the joy of destroying it. How do you feel about that as a parent? You feel disrespected. You feel like the gift is dishonored. And so the reason we care for our bodies and the reason we think about creation care is out of respect for the incredible gift that he's given us in these things. That's what calls us forward uh, to care for this creation now and, and to think about it as a reflection of what's to come and to think about it as, hey, maybe I can see in this place some reflection of the beauty that's meant to be eternal and what was intended for us in the garden before sin entered into the world. Why should I contribute more sin and brokenness to this place when I can maybe be a part of redeeming it out of respect and out of love for the person who gave it? And the second problem with this idea that it's, hey, it's all just going to be destroyed, so why does it matter, um, is, uh, is, is really that that idea is just bad biblically. It's just not good biblically. Uh, let, me, let me show us some things in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, talking about how we use our bodies. This is a context where Paul is talking about sexual immorality and calling people to live in sexual purity. He says this in 13 to 15, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. For God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. The resurrection, right? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? The call to sexual purity and the call to holiness for some reason, that the reason that Paul gives us for that isn't uh, what well, would be better for you. You're going to have a whole world of hurt if you live that way, which is true. If you live in sexual immorality, you will have a whole world of hurt. But that's not the reason that Paul gives for us here. The reason Paul gives is the resurrection. There is something about our bodies and the way we treat them that has something to do with how they're connected with Christ how they're connected with the rest of the body, and how they're connected with him in eternity. I, and this is a mystery. This, I don't really understand this, and theologians don't really understand this. When I looked at these verses, I, I opened up one of my commentaries and read like 10 pages of strong academic work trying to untangle it and trying to imagine what it would be like when somehow um, we... Uh, take our bodies into eternity and what is left of us that ends up in there, however that works, what that connection is, I don't know. But Paul is very, very clear there's a connection. There's something about the way we treat our bodies now that affects relationship with him uh, in eternity. And we recognize grace, we recognize forgiveness. And that's the whole context of Paul's teaching here. He's not saying this is an anti-grace thing. He's not saying this is a religious thing, this is a works thing. But he's saying there's something here in terms of a connection between how we treat our bodies in the present that will be reflected in eternity. And later in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about our bodies as seeds. He uses the metaphor of planting seeds, that there's something about us Whatever is sown imperishable will be raised, or sown as perishable will be raised imperishable. There's something of this that gets sown that reflects somehow, some way, what gets raised. So we look at our bodies and how we use them and think that 
the impact, the way we use them, the way we treat them, has something to do with eternity. Verse 42, chapter 15, um, it says this, So with the resurrection of the dead, so, this is, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power, but it's still that it. It's still that it. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. For this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable body, imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. There's this it, this thing, this something that I'm walking around in, that you're walking around in, that ultimately gets clothed with immortality. I kind of want to up the quality of that final product, <laughs> right? I don't know what that means. I don't know what that works, but Paul is making a clear connection here. There's a mystery here for us to grapple with. But what he ends with in sort of tying it all together and helping us understand it, he sort of summarizes this like this in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Somehow the work of our hands, what we accomplish now, what we do now, because of the resurrection, isn't in vain. It's not useless. It's not wasted effort. It's not work my whole life, die, go to heaven, and then a complete fresh start. There's something that we take into eternity with us by the power of the resurrection. Again, this is a great mystery. I don't understand exactly how that works, but it's undeniable in the scriptures. So our works are not in vain. And just another thought, you know, my, my brain jumped the tracks as I was studying this. You know, our, our prayers aren't in vain. How many of you, you grew up praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think in, in the heaven re, heavenly reality and the coming of the new heaven and the new earth, that's where that prayer is ultimately answered. God didn't intend us to pray that prayer and not have it answered. I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just some of your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like just a little bit, like whatever little bits we can accomplish here and now until we die, that little bit can be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is an ultimate answer to that prayer that the Lord called us to pray. He intends for it to be answered uh, in eternity. And then the final thought uh, for us in thinking about how we live towards the glorious future that the Lord has for us. We see in Philippians chapter 3, verse 11 to 18, and the idea here is that our suffering is not in vain. This is Paul. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And here's the why. That I might know him, back to that original purpose in verse 11, that I might know him and the power of resurrection or resurrection and that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection of the dead. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. And these are one of the trickiest passages I've ever tackled in the scriptures. Because the context here, Paul is talking in every way about throwing down and, and laying down works, laying down uh, his accomplishments, laying down uh, his pride, laying down uh, his uh, earned uh, righteousness and accepting by faith the righteousness of Christ. And he somehow ends that saying, Oh, that I may share in Jesus' sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection of the dead. What does it mean to attain the resurrection of the dead when you just laid down all your righteousness? What is he talking about here? Is he all of a sudden falling back into works? Is he all of a sudden uh, falling back into striving? Again, another 10 pages of commentaries to try to figure it out and try to untangle it in language study. And what I came to, just a couple of thoughts from this verse 10, verse 11 combination that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. Those two things are not things that can be opposed to one another in the way the grammar is there. You cannot hear Paul say, oh, that I might uh, endure sufferings and then one day know him through the resurrection. The knowing of God is fully invested and fully contained in the idea of identifying with him in his sufferings and fully contained within the idea of the resurrection. They are both fully and completely a part of knowing him. Knowing him means in knowing him in his sufferings, and knowing him means knowing him in the resurrection. There is something for us, the whole thing, the whole package, the whole intention, the foundation of all of this is having a passion to know him. That's what eternity is about. That's what this is all about. It's about knowing him. It's about glorifying him. It's about seeing him. When he walked the earth and stubbed his toe, uh, when he uh, hurt his hands as a carpenter, when he got slivers, when we experience those things, we're meant to experience the same thing that Christ experienced and we're meant to know him in that. When we experience betrayal and brokenness and, and wounding from other humans, we are experiencing what Christ experienced. Uh, we know him in that moment and he's present to us in that moment. When we experience the pain of grief and loss, we are knowing him in that moment. We are with him in that moment. We know him 
in the brokenness. We know him in the suffering. And in knowing him in the suffering, and while knowing him in the suffering, together with knowing him in the suffering, we experience him in the resurrection. These two ideas just simply in the text can't be separated. They go together. They go hand in hand. How we know him in the suffering is how we know him in the resurrection. That word attain, and it is such a tricky word, is a Greek word word that's sort of pronounced katano. And we've and we've sort of translated it attain. And when you think of the word attain, you think climb, you think grasp, you think get, you think uh, achieve, don't you? When you think of that word attain. But I don't know how we arrived at that in the English translation, but in the Greek, it means it's a word that they would use when they were saying to come down from the highland and go to the lowland. To come down from the mountain and go to the sea. To Kitano, to the sea. So when Paul is talking about attaining to the resurrection, He's saying the path to that is identifying with Christ in his sufferings. And we see this reflected all over the place, right? If I have identified with him in baptism, identified with him in his death, so too shall we receive the resurrection. There's something for us to accept, something for us to walk in as we journey in this world, as we wrestle with the pains and the griefs and we invite the Holy Spirit into the midst of all of it. It is a part of our journey to the resurrection. It's all about identifying with Christ. It's all about identification with him. It's all for knowing him. It's all for knowing him. It's all for knowing him. It's all for face-to-face, heart-to-heart, life of knowing Jesus. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovcchurch.ca.